sermon text. It can be found in your Bible. We are actually, this is the first time we've been preaching through the ESV. So we do have NIV Bibles right now, but we're preaching through the ESV, so there will be a slight difference. But the sermon text here is the ESV uh, in here. So listen as I read the word of the Lord. This is Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end it will be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word of the Lord. Well, school is on. I don't know about you, but if you have school-aged kids, the frenzy has begun. And because we have four children, it's like Grand Central Station in our house. We go from zero miles an hour to about 100 miles an hour in one week. Everything starts to go. Some of you are getting some nods. If you used to have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you have kids right now. You know, first of all, they're the meetings. Constantly, the schools want to meet. I was at my son's middle school for two and a half hours on Tuesday. And I literally crawled out of that school when I was done. I couldn't remember anything because I had such overload. And then they sent you with this supply list. I don't know about you, but this thing continues to grow. I mean, I had to go rob a bank before I could go pick out the last supply list because it was just so expensive. And then, of course, there's clothes. And the problem with kids is they grow. It's true. They grow, you know. And so I'm like, well, he's got a ton of clothes, you know. No, but they come to here with his jeans and they're capris now. So we got to go, you know. I wish I was the CEO of Volcom. 
you know, that surfwear company, because that guy's making a killing right now. Because we're just getting all of this stuff to take care of the kids. And so there's all of this meetings and all this stuff going on with the kids. But you know, as I analyze as a parent, I think there's something else going on in us as parents. And that word <laughs> is hope. See, our kids are growing up. Our oldest is now a freshman in high school. Our middle boy is now in middle school. And they're experiencing new challenges, tougher assignments, things they never experienced before. And our hope is that they'll be able to handle them. They'll be able to move on, if you will, to grow up from childhood to maturity. Because we understand that at some point they'll leave our house and they'll need to be able to stand on their own. And so we worry and we fret and we hope. And there's something really neat when you see your kids maturing. When they have a particular situation and they deal with it in a way that you weren't sure they could deal with it. And you see them just grow a little bit. Not just physically, but emotionally. And so uh, we want to see this moving from childhood to maturity, from childishness to maturity. And there's something also on the other side of that hope that's worried when they don't, when they don't grow up. I saw this interesting article on the paper, the pilot on Wednesday. Great title. Honest officer, we were just walking this goat from the zoo. Everything went according to plan for two pajama-clad stepsisters who took a goat they'd freed from the Minnesota Zoo for a late-night walk. Until, until they told the Mankato police officer who stopped them around 11.30 p.m. Saturday that the animal lived in their bedroom closet. The stepsisters, ages 6 and 7, said they regularly took the goat out for late-night walks because Dad didn't know their mother had bought it two weeks earlier. The unconvinced officer walked the girls home, where their parents explained they'd attended a birthday party earlier at the Sibley Park Zoo earlier that day. That's when they hatched a plan to take one of the goats home. The free press say police don't know how the girls freed the goat, which was returned to the zoo. Childish behavior and cute. But what happens when a 20-year-old goes and steals a goat from the zoo? That's called larceny. <laughs> They're thrown in jail for that, not given a little pat on the head and a, and a drink of milk and sent to bed because they haven't grown up. See, there's something strange. I have my kids and there's a big range. You know, there's something strange when I'm reading them Funny Farm when they're age six. But if I'm having to read them Funny Farm when they're age 18, something's wrong. They should be reading something that looks a lot more like this than like this. And it's really cute, you know, when they have these little shoes when they're young at a certain age. Well, it's not little. <laughs> but it's not so cute when they're wearing the same shoe. Their shoe should look something like this gargantuan sole right here. The point is, they haven't grown up. They haven't moved on to maturity. That's what this whole passage is really about. See, everything I've been talking about in the physical realm holds true for the spiritual realm as well. See, we were meant to grow up in our faith. It's the same principle. You know, there's something cute about a kid who sings that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
But when they're older and more developed in our faith, we hope that we'll hear even more beautiful truth coming from their mouth than just that. And as we look at this passage and we see the writer from, uh, to this church, remember a little recap. This church in the book of Hebrews is a small church in a cosmopolitan city. And this writer, who's a pastor, it sure seems like, is writing to this church and he is worried. He's worried about what he's seen. He's worried that they're not growing up in their faith. Rather, they're actually regressing in their faith. And so what I want to do for this next two hours is to take a look. And I want to ask you the same question. Are you growing up to maturity? Because here's the premise. It's really quite simple. You can tell where you are going by looking at how you're growing. You can tell by where you're going by looking at how you're growing. We're going to look at three specific stages of development. Number one, being childish. And the writer here has criticism for being childish. The second one we're going to look at is being stillborn. And the writer here gives a word of warning for that. And then the final thing we're going to look at is being mature. And the writer here gives an exhortation. Because you can tell where you're going by looking at how you're going. At your growing. So let's look at the first one, being childish. Again, remember, this church in Hebrews is under intense persecution right now. Small church, just like us, in a cosmopolitan city, probably Rome. And they accepted the word with joy. But things have started to get tough. People in this church have lost homes. They've lost jobs. They've lost reputation. And it would appear that some, to some of them, their very life is on the line. And so this writer has been writing to them to encourage them to help them remember that Jesus is the one that they were looking for all along. And so he's gone through showing the superiority of Jesus to anything else that they could follow. First, that he's superior to the angels. This is Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2. He's superior to the angelic beings. Second, that he's the superior prophet, the one who brings the message of God to man. And finally, he's turning into the, the, the fact that Jesus is the superior priest, the one who represents man to God. And in the passage before, he talks about that he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he's about to explain what that means. But before he does that, he puts on the brakes. And he says this right here, this whole passage. About this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you are dull of hearing, slow to learn. For by this time, you ought to be preachers, teachers, you need, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God. This word here about be, becoming dull of hearing literally means to be sluggish in the Greek, to be like a slug. I know if you've ever seen a slug walk, it's a pretty slow process. He's saying you guys have stopped, you've stopped to a crawl, you're barely moving in your spiritual maturity. You're sluggish, you're, you should be further along the path, but instead, you're right here. And we see also that they weren't always like that. In fact, it says that they have become sluggish. They used to be on a nice cliff, moving along in their maturity, but all of a sudden, they slowed down. What was it that happened? In fact, they've actually regressed. 
They were here in their spiritual walk and they're going backwards. Though they ought to be eating meat, they're drinking milk. In fact, they've got to be taught all over again some of the elementary truths that they once knew. What happened? Verse 13 gives us the clue. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now this thing, the word of righteousness, actually meant something to those people when they heard it. The word of righteousness back then, from what scholars have been able to determine from looking at the writings, was a reference to Mark 8.34, where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. And so this concept of the word of righteousness deals with martyrdom, dying for your faith. It was the pastor Polycarp in the town of Smyrna that said, Christ Jesus in a sermon endured everything in honoring the Father. Therefore, let us become imitators of his patient endurance and glorify him whenever we suffer for the sake of his name. I therefore exhort you to obey the word of righteousness and practice patient endurance to the limit. Something has happened to this church as they're staring in the face the possibility that they could die for what they believe, and they're resisting it. They're saying, I'm willing to go all the way to this line, but not quite over it. And they're stepping back away from it. They're resisting the word of righteousness. And as a result, stunted development, miniature maturity, milk, not meat. Now you may say to yourself, this is, wait a second, this is a heavy price here, Jesus. I mean, you're demanding everything from me. I mean, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, but really my very life? And Jesus unabashedly says, yes. Whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. Jesus demands a heavy price. And it's something that us in evangelical America don't often understand because we believe that, that Christianity is something we believe. But Jesus proclaims it as someone that we are. See, following Christ isn't like a philosophy like Keynesian economics or being a, a Republican or something like that. It's a total giving over of oneself to this one called uh, Jesus Christ. Because Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a person. And so Jesus demands all. The reason he has the right to demand all is because he is the Lord of the universe. The one who created all things and sustains all things. And so he has the right to ask for all. Number two, the reason he asks all is because he's worth all. He's the one that we've been looking for all along anyways. And number three, the reason he has the right to ask all is because he knows how it's all going to turn out. It was Peter that said to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And Jesus said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Well, this church in Hebrews is looking at this line, this chasm, and they're walking away from it. Now, let me ask you a question. Have they walked away from the faith? doesn't say that. They're continuing to go to church. They're continuing to live out their faith. Kind of. With a maybe 
with a caveat. And as a result, what we see is miniature maturity. There was a tree I was going to bring to you today. I had a little plant that I wanted to use as an illustration. The only problem was I killed it. So I couldn't bring it to you. So I brought you a picture. I used to have this plant that sat on my doorstep. And where is it? Oh, Lord have mercy. Let's bring up Brian to find my plant. It's a bonsai tree. Anybody have a bonsai tree? Not bonsai, bonsai tree. Kind of a neat idea, okay? There are these like little trees that they've been doing in Japan for a, you know, a thousand years or whatever. And I have this little bonsai tree. And the neat thing I learned about the bonsai tree as I went to that great eye in the sky Wikipedia is I thought that you had to use special seeds to get a bonsai tree. The reality is you can use any tree you want. Any perennial woody, uh, where was it? Any uh, thing that produces leaves a perennial woody stem tree or shrub that produces true branches you can use as a bonsai tree. The key is that you cut it out. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that lovely bonsai tree. You take it, I think in this case a redwood, and you take it and you contain it. You put it in a small container below so that the roots can't grow out. And you carefully prune it above. So it doesn't get too far from the confines of its controlled environment. So I didn't understand this either. The goal of the skill, the art of bonsai making, is to make a tree that looks as real as possible. Through shaping it and pruning it, you want a tree that actually looks like the real thing, except in miniature. So something that should be 100 feet high is only two feet high. And they're beautiful. You know, when you're looking at this and you have no perspective, you would think to yourself, that is a 100-foot, 200-foot tree. It's three feet tall. There's something beautiful about it, but there's also something sad about it. As I was writing this sermon, I was looking out my window, and we had that hurricane recently. And the back of my yard has these massive, beautiful oak trees that were meant and designed to reach up to the sky and to spread out their branches and to take in the world and to be able to stand up to 80 mile an hour winds and laugh at them. But if I was to take this bonsai tree and put it out there, it would be destroyed in a second. You see, miniature maturity, never reaching out, never going beyond where it's supposed to be. My question for you today is, are you an oak tree or are you a bonsai tree? So often our standard of our maturity is, how do I look compared to everybody else? But the standard we are to use is, am I growing more and more into the image of the one who made me, Jesus Christ? That's what it's all about. Ephesians 4.12 tells us the purpose of the church is to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants blown here and there by the waves and the winds of teaching and cunning and craftiness of men. What shapes us into this oak tree? It's God. But we have a part 
the word of righteousness. Saying yes to Jesus Christ all the way to the end. And so my question for you, and it's a serious one, is are you growing? Maybe you're religious. You have the leather Bible. You help serve the church. You go to the Bible studies. You know the answers. You have all of the things. But the reality is when you look in the mirror, there's still a bonsai tree. That you haven't grown up to maturity. In fact, you haven't grown for years. Maybe it's because somewhere along the path, you've bumped up against that word of righteousness, giving all to Jesus Christ, and you've said, I'm not ready for that. I'm ready for everything else, but not ready for that. And so what I want to do is to encourage you. See, it's been said that the job of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. To say, say yes to Jesus Christ. To cross that line. To say yes, whatever, whenever, Jesus, to the end, you have my life. Because when you do that, that is when you will start to grow again and again and again. Because you can tell where you're going by looking where you're growing. Well, this brings me to my second point. If there's a word of criticism for the childish, there's a word of warning for the stillborn. This passage here, verses 4 through 8, is one of the most debated passages in all of the New Testament. Generates a tremendous amount of controversy and generates a lot of genuine fear in some of us because it asks the question, can I come to Christ? Can I become a believer? Can I exercise faith and then fall away at some point? And so we want to tackle this question because I want to allay those genuine fears because there's some people that say, yeah, that's what the scripture says. But I want to tell you that that's not what the scripture says. There's a big difference between what the scripture says and what the scripture means, isn't there? Let me give you an example. We do this all the time. I go and I get in my car, and we're going to the store or someplace, and I said, hey, is everybody in the car? Well, what am I talking about? Everybody in the world? No, I'm talking about everybody in my family. Well, you have to interpret it in its proper context to understand what it's talking about. And we have to determine any single passage in the entire context of the Bible. You see, what we're talking about is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. A lot of loaded words here. Let's break that down. Doctrine means teaching. Okay? Perseverance means lasting. And saints means Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. If you've never met a saint before, hello, how do you do? I'm Saint Carlos. Not because of myself, because of Christ. But that's who the Bible says are saints. Now notice, it says the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is what I said. Not the doctrines of the perseverance of the saints. Because it is one teaching that goes across the entire scripture. Because if we really believe the Bible, we really believe that it's God's word. We really believe that God has communicated to us. He has given us a central truth in which all of these truths fit. And this passage here is one of those. So we must look at that in the entire perspective. And if we do, we will discover the doctrine of the perseverance of saints holds true. 
And the reason is that our faith in Christ is not our initial decision, but rather a response to the decision that Jesus Christ has made to first bring us to himself. So what I want to do, someday we'll, we'll preach a whole series on the doctrine uh, of the perseverance of the saints. But right now we're just going to look at this scripture in its context. Let's look at verse 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own heart and holding them up to contempt. Now notice one thing, first of all. He's going from the first person, plural. Look at the passage right before. Let us leave, let us go on. And then he moves into the third person, plural. For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. For those who have tasted the heavenly gift. And he starts to break down the distinctives of this group. So we're seeing two groups here. He's talking about let us, and then he's talking about those. And he breaks down this group. This group who has, number one, they've been enlightened. Number two, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Number four, they've tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come. What are these benefits that he's talking about. He's talking about the benefits of those who have been a part of a church. Listen, number one, they've been enlightened. Okay, this is past tense. It's something that occurred. Enlightened in the old, back in the day, meant to be baptized. The word there, photizo, is the Greek word. And it's in the passive tense that they have been baptized. When you would be baptized in the ancient church, it would happen at sunrise. Because you would come, and to symbolize your coming from death to life, there would be the sun as well. In fact, the other way to describe being baptized in the ancient church was to be brought to the light. They have been enlightened, these people. They have tasted the heavenly gift. What is that? They've come to the communion table. They've come as Christians. They've professed having faith. They've come to the communion table. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Just like right now you're hearing me preach the Word of God, they've tasted the Word of God. They've done all these things, and yet something is missing. It's interesting, this word tasted, isn't it? We have a new, play, uh, new favorite place we go for dessert, my family and I. It's called Key West Yogurt. Anybody go to Key West Yogurt? Oh man, that's good stuff. Good stuff. Expensive, but good. But before, when, the way it works at Key West is they have different flavors all the time. And you go in there and you get one of these little cups first. And you go and you just put a little bit of it so you can taste it. Just to kind of see what it's like. But ultimately, that's not enough. To really enjoy the yogurt, what do you have to do? you got to get one of those big ones. And you go and you crank it. And then you go and what do you do? You buy it. See, these people, they tasted these things. The communion table, baptism, the Word of God. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've been companions in the Holy Spirit. They've seen the Holy Spirit working in the life of the church. And yet it never moved from here to here. And as a result, what has happened? They have fallen away. 
This language, fallen away, if you translate it, literally denotes a deliberate and calculated renunciation. A walking away from the church, a walking away from their faith. See, they, they were blessed with it all. They experienced it all, and yet they walked away. The reality, they were in the church, but not of the church. They were imposters. According to USA Today, those who knew the Hansons described them as a close family. They attended Mass weekly and they were very active in Opus Dei, a Catholic institution. Hanson's three sons attended the Heights School in Potomac, an all-boys prep school. And his daughters attended Oak Crest Schools for Girls, an independent Roman Catholic school. Hanson's wife, Bonnie, taught religion there. They were supposedly the ideal family living in Vienna, Virginia. Hanson, a government employee of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, attended Mass every Saturday, took out the trash on Tuesday, played racquetball on Thursday. But Robert Philip Hanson was more than he seemed. His activities in the FBI have been described as possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. Hansen, who was finally discovered in 2001, spied for Soviet and Russian intelligence services for 22 years, beginning in 1979. At that time, Hansen approached the GRU, the Soviet military agency, and agreed to pass over valuable secrets regarding American espionage agents who returned for money. Over the course of 22 years, numerous agents were identified and executed or imprisoned by authorities directly as a result of Hansen's intelligence. In return for his secrets, he received $1.4 million in cash and diamonds. Hansen looked like an FBI employee. He acted like one, worked in the same building. In fact, he had a badge, but in reality, he was far from it. How did one know? Wasn't by his appearance, wasn't by his paycheck, it wasn't by his badge, it wasn't by his business card. It was by his actions that ultimately proved who he was. Verse 7 puts it this way land that drinks in the rain and produces a crop useful for those who cultivated it is blessed. But land that drinks in the rain and produces thorn and thistles, its final result is being burned. So let me ask you the question, why does this author bring it up in the first place? Why does he bring it up? Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that accompany salvation. Why is he urging them to examine it if he doesn't believe that they're uh, those type of people? The reason is he wants them to examine their own salvation. Not to be fearful of it, but to be serious. Because you can know where you're going by looking at how you're growing. See, it's not enough to just come to church. I love the PCA. I love the PCA faithful. You know, I'm one of them. Who, when they move, they come immediately to a PCA church because they know that they'll taste the word there. They know they'll have access to the table. They know they'll be a part of the fellowship. But it's not enough just to come to church, is it? The question is, where have I built my foundation? Is it on the church? Is it on being a good person? Or is it on Jesus Christ? So examine yourselves. Why do I come? Because it's the right thing to do? Because my kids will get a good religious instruction? But in the end, am I really just tasting 
If you are, if this message belongs to you, don't just taste. Buy. Buy what Christ is selling. Eternal life in Him. Because if you do, you will grow. And I'm not saying maturing will be easy. I'm not saying there won't be setbacks. But the proof that you are called is because you continue. Because Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. 1 Timothy 2.12 put it this way, that if we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithfulness, He will remain faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. This brings me to my final point, moving on to maturity. Verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and so on and so on. He's talking about these things, faith and repentance, baptism and laying on of hands, which is what they would do when they would baptize you, resurrection and the final judgment. These are foundational truths of the Christian faith, which we all should receive at the beginning. And they're not to be discarded, but they're to be built upon, strengthened to move from milk to meat. So the question is, how do we handle this solid food? How do we move on to maturity? Verse 14 tells us, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. How? By constant practice. You know what this word constant practice is? In Greek, it's gymnazo, from where we get the word gymnasium. Constant practice is what occurs in life. A lot of us think, here's how we get mature. We've got to get in a room and we've got to study the Bible. We've got to become like Calvin or Luther. We've got to know all the Greek words. We've got to be able to get at a point where we could go teach a Bible study. But you know what this passage is saying? Uh-uh. Life is where we move from theology to actuality. Life is a river and we're the rocks in it. And life shapes us either to maturity or childishness. How do we do that? We train, our discernment is trained by constant practice. You know what this word discernment is? Diacrisis. If you translate it, through crisis. Isn't life really a series of many crises? Little decisions. Where will I go? How will I respond to that email? Will I go take that job or this one? Will I respond in anger or in kindness? Life is a series of diacrisis, the gymnasium of where we are trained. A thousand crises a day. And the truth of the matter is, as we respond in faithfulness to God, remembering that word of righteousness, we will grow. See, some of you are saying, yeah, but when I learn more of the Bible, that's when I'll grow. This passage is saying the exact opposite. When you're faithful to what you know of the Bible, then you will receive more. Then the gates will be opened just a little bit more and more. And through this process, you will grow and come to maturity. That is what it's all about. Now, some of you, I'll close with this thought. 
because time is drawing nigh. Some of you are hearing that and you're saying to yourself, I don't know how to make it. Some of you are saying to yourself, I'm a bonsai tree and I'm 60 years old. What's gone wrong? I never can go in the right direction. How am I ever going to make it to maturity? And I want to encourage you because the reason you will make it to maturity is because the one who is in you, Jesus Christ, made it to maturity before you did. See, before Jesus Christ became the life giver, he had to live the same life that you and I did, didn't he? To be born as a little boy, to grow up. Although he was a son, Hebrews says, he learned obedience by what he suffered. A million diacresis growing up in life, making that decision to love his heavenly father and to not be seduced by the world. And so we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as you and I were, but without sin. See, the one who is in you, Jesus Christ, is the one who will lead you to maturity, because he is the only one who's ever done it. The reality of life is you can't, but he can. And he is within you, and you are in him. You don't want to. But he wants to. And he is in you, and you are in him. You won't, but he will. He is in you, and you are in him. So are you lost? Look back to true north. That word of righteousness. Jesus, all that I have right now, I give to you, even to the death, and you will start growing. How do I mature? The gymnasium of life. Constant practice, little decisions, day by day, applying what I know of Jesus to this situation. And you will find, sooner or later, that you will start moving from a bonsai tree to an oak tree. If you want to know where you're going, all you have to do is look at how you're Let's pray.